0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willets Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting The Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select The Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So when you think about God... Thinking about you, what do you think about? All right, so you got to kind of piece that through a little bit. When when you're thinking about God and when you're thinking about him, you're trying to figure out what God is thinking about you, what is it that you are actually thinking he's thinking about you? Did that clear it up? Okay. So anyway, the point here is we're trying to figure out what are God's thoughts about you. And now questions like this, questions about our spiritual lives are going to be asked all summer long in this series that we are calling Guess Who? Which focuses on the lives of the apostles who wrote the New Testament, the disciples who wrote the New Testament. And so we are going to be asking this kind of a question throughout the whole of the summer. And it will be, uh, each week, one particular focus, and we're going to try to understand their life a little bit. And you could think about this as kind of the last series was kind of like, uh, you know, a head series. We were going after the, the, the mind and the renewing of the mind and what we believe about certain things and what we understand about certain things. Uh, but in this series, we're going to be going more so after the heart, after spiritual transformation, and if you consider the diversity of the people that follow Jesus, uh, you've got people all over the place. You have devote, devout people. You have religious people. You have political zealots in blue collar and white collar. You have this guy who's John the Apostle. And you have all sorts of folks who are like him and lots more who are not like him. And yet every one of them, had this powerful spiritual experience as they walked with Jesus. So what does it take to walk with God in a vibrant and spiritually rich way like those who have gone before us? So that's the goal of our new series. And so we ask it again, when you think about God thinking about you, what... Do you think about? You might say, well, I think lots of people fall into this category. Well, I think he's not particularly involved in what is going on with me. I mean, after all, he is God. He's running a particularly immense organization we call the universe that probably keeps him busy, and he's got like big geopolitical things On his mind, certainly that's the kind of stuff he's thinking. Maybe you have, you know, you grew up in a family where dad was like super busy all the time. Just to make ends meet, he had to be. And that's kind of the lens that you're experiencing. My father, he was, my my dad's a great guy. We're still very, very close even to this day. He's 80 years old now. When I was growing up, he had a very difficult job. And so we were living in northern New Jersey, and he was commuting to Manhasset, right up here on the North Shore. It's like an hour and a half on a good day with no, well, there's always traffic, but you know, you get the point. Like an hour and a half, one way. Sometimes he'd be four hours in a car. That means he left before any of us woke up. He got home for a late dinner with us. And then after dinner, he normally covered the dining table with his paperwork because he had to prep for his next day of work. And I had no doubt that he loved me. I mean, his hard work was even an expression of that love for me. But, but it did mean we didn't have the kind of time or involvement in each other's lives, which makes you sort of start to think maybe God is sort of like that, real busy. Or you might say, I kind of think he's, you know, he kind of goes up and down. He vacillates a little bit with me. That might be like, a, like an EKG. This is how God is with you based upon how Well, how I am with him, right? Because it doesn't take long for us growing up before we really figure out that though we know we're loved, we know that we're really loved. You know, yes, we're appreciated of being part of the family, but we're really appreciated when we're doing really cool things and big things. It doesn't take us long to figure that out. Win the big game. Bring home the straight A's on the report card shine above your peers in some way, and that's when the family really celebrates you. Because, of course, how we do means that, well, we're not, we're not loved anymore, but well, we sort of are loved just a little bit more, it seems. We never want to say that, but it's certainly the experience we have. Or maybe you're saying, no, no, that's not actually how I think of God thinking about me at all. In fact, I'm kind of hoping he doesn't really think about me much at all. (laughs) Because when he does think about me, I'm pretty sure he's shaking his head. I'm pretty sure he's disappointed. Because I know what I'm like. I know what I do. I know the issues that I'm dealing with. I think he's pretty frustrated when he has to think about me. Maybe you have a sense of not quite measuring up. Of not quite fulfilling your potential of having to learn the same old spiritual lessons time and time and time again. And you just know that if you were God, well, I'd be frustrated with me too. Surely he is. I hope he's not thinking about me too much and I can scoot in behind the curtain when that time comes. The writers of the New Testament, they sidestep all of these misconceptions about God and they drill down into a deep, deep, truth. And it's a truth that the human soul simultaneously resists and is irresistibly drawn to because it's actually what the soul needs most. But for some incredibly difficult to comprehend reason, we start to pull away from the very thing that our soul needs. And fortunately. Other travelers have walked these roads before us, and so we get to learn from them, like the Apostle John. John was born and raised in Israel, so on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. Modern-day Israel, of course, was ancient Israel. And there's two big bodies of water here. There's the Dead Sea in the south, and there's the Sea of Galilee up in the north, and that's where John was raised, and from the very young age, his dad, Zebedee, that's his dad's name, which is a fun name to say. We should name more people Zebedee today. His mother uh, was Salome, or Salome, and he had a brother named James. And from this very early age, they would have worked in the family business. No doubt, dad was grooming them to take over the business, which, by the way, was doing really quite well. They were actually fishermen, but beyond fishermen, they were actually running a very successful fishing business at a time when many people were just barely sort of making it. They had others working for them. They were employers in this region, which means their business was probably one of the larger and more successful of the fishing businesses there at the Sea of Galilee. They were from what you'd call the wealthy working class, Then Jesus shows up, and he turns everything upside down. He calls the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he says, I want you to come follow me. You fish? Great. Now you're going to fish for people. Come and follow me. Which, of course, they did. John held a very special place among all of the apostles, and even with Jesus personally. And this is a very sweet thing as you read through the scriptures to see just how the two of them continued to relate. He was part of the inner circle. So he was one of the few witnesses to some of the things that we get, uh, stories we read about. Like for instance, it'll often say that he didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And so they let them follow into a few special things. Like in this case, they saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. That was a pretty special moment for sure. Another place, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before him. The Mount of Transfiguration, John was there. Pretty incredible opportunities. At the Last Supper, It was John who reclined close to Jesus, putting his head upon his chest. And Jesus spoke to him about who would betray him. And then later on, they went into the garden where Jesus was going to enter into this intense time of emotional anguish. And it says that he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he wanted these three to be with him and to pray for him as he struggled with God about what was what was about to unfold for him, which of course was the cross. It was also then that James and John and Peter quickly fell asleep while Jesus was praying alone. And John's also the apostle who was the only one who had an up-close witness to the crucifixion with Mary and with the mother of Jesus, Mary. This was no doubt a formative moment. John was one of the first to recognize the significance of the empty tomb. And later, after Jesus ascended, he became a prominent member of the Jerusalem church and even beyond that, and uh, really did some pretty amazing things for the kingdom of God. John was truly a hero of the early church. And so you hear that and you go, that's all pretty impressive stuff. No wonder cathedrals all around the world are named after this guy. That's that's a pretty impressive resume. No wonder he got to write so much of the New Testament. Five books, the Gospel of John, three epistles of John, and the book of the Revelation. I mean, no wonder Jesus loved this guy. In fact, that's actually what he called himself. John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) The disciple whom Jesus loved. And that is some serious devotion. And you know, if you want intimacy with God, I mean real and genuine intimacy with God, if that is anywhere in the longing of your soul, then sold-out devotion is essential. Sold-out devotion is essential. John was raised a devout and observant Jew. He was faithful to the promises of the Old Testament as we see him following the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. He left the family business to follow Jesus, and he lived this passionate and faithful life to Jesus, which is so important You know, you can imagine what Zebedee would have been thinking when he had gone a little farther. He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Without delay. That's some sold-out devotion. Sometimes, I think we forget the role that Jesus wants to play in our lives. Sometimes I think that we, we want to have him kind of as an add-on. Right? We, we kind of have our work life and our family life and we got all of these other responsibilities so we're going to put a little religion in there, start going out to church, try to get a little bit connected so that, you know, I got some spiritual stuff going on. And so our faith becomes a little add-on to an already busy life. But that's, of course, not what we see happening here. John shows us that Jesus actually becomes the center of his heart's desire. He becomes his his true north, his fixed point of reference. And so, you know, just why? Why do we keep Jesus at arm's length? Why do we get a little bit uncomfortable when I start talking about being sold out in full devotion? What is it? in the way we think about God, or we think about ourselves, which makes us keep Jesus at arm's length. So something's doing it. There's something about our belief about God or about ourselves that says, I'm not really sure I want to go too, fur- too much further down the road in this thing. I think I'm going to keep you at arm's length because it's more comfortable for me. And what is it? What is the reason behind that? A little soul-searching to start to ask that question would be valuable. Because sold-out devotion is essential. But, and this is key, it is not enough. Sold-out devotion is key. It's going to be essential. But it is simply not enough. It proves insufficient for us to experience real intimacy with God. Devotion is a—it's great. It's a fantastic first step. But it isn't sufficient in and of itself. If you want to grow spiritually, if you want to be all in, if something in your heart is longing for this, passion is awesome. But it is not enough. Something always seems to get in the way of intimacy with God. God, and we see it even in the life of John. John was nicknamed by Jesus one of the sons of thunder. And you look at that and you're like, I wouldn't mind being called the sons of thunder. I sound like a a child of Thor. You know, like this sounds like a good thing. But I I think when you read the context and you see why James and John were called the sons of thunder, you start to think, maybe this wasn't such a good nickname. Maybe this was Jesus trying to remind them of something that they actually had to work on, something they were having a problem with. Maybe this talks about a disposition that doesn't quite line up with the Jesus way of life. So, for instance, John is uh, they're they're traveling along with Jesus. He's already committed himself to following him. And they come across a guy who he doesn't know who's casting out demons in Jesus name. And John's like, dude, you can't be doing that. You got to stop. You can't be like calling on Jesus name. We're the ones who are who supposed to be doing this. You're out, we're in, we're the ones doing it, knock it off. And Jesus comes along, and he's like, John, chill out, relax. The dude's doing it in my name. What is your problem with him? You know, it's like, I don't get it. Or think of this one. They're traveling through Samaria. And this is, this is our guy, John, all right? This is in Luke chapter 9. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? (laughs) You imagine this? They really insulted you. I'm going to rush to your honor. The best way I can honor Jesus would be calling fire from heaven and obliterate them. Wow! I bet John would have loved to get his name on that miracle. What an incredible thing. I'll go down in history as the one who called fire down from heaven and consumed a whole village. He's excited. After walking with Jesus for years the sons of thunder appear again causing major division and anger among this merry band of disciples. In Mark chapter 10, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They ask that first, right? That's hilarious to me. Listen, whatever we're about to say, we want you to do. What do you want me to do for you? He asked, and they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Wow. What a brazen ask. Listen, we pretty much want to be in charge. So the rest of these guys are good. Peter's cool, you know, but really what we want is for us to run the show. When you usher in your new kingdom, we're your guys. One at the right, one at the left, you pick because you know it's going to be me, right? Like I'm sure this is exactly what he's thinking. Excessively ambitious, prone to anger, spiteful, arrogant, judgmental, filled with unrighteous indignation. That's our son of thunder. John was never going to experience the fullness of intimacy with God if he continued down this path, if he continued in his sin. Now, at this point... If you're linking this with what I said earlier, you might be saying, see, that's why I know God is disappointed in me, because I struggle with sin. I have these issues. I know many of my issues, and I'm even more scared about the ones I don't know. And this is why I understand that when God thinks about me, he's frustrated. It's all right here. I can see it. This is what I worry about. This is what I fear. This is why I'm, I'm concerned about what God actually really thinks and feels about me. Not so fast. I want you to open up to 1 John chapter 4. This is our guy writing. And what we're going to see here in a minute is that God's love becomes this dominant theme of John's teaching and his life. In fact, some of the greatest truths that we know about God, particularly his love, they come from John. Because somehow this guy experiences this radical transformation. He goes from arrogance to actually encouraging us to wash each other's feet like a servant would. He goes from wanting to be the greatest to speaking about the need to love and to honor each other. Think about what a far cry it is from being eager to sit upon a throne of power and call down fire upon the Samaritans' heads to consume them to telling us the story in his gospel about a Samaritan woman who was at a well and how tenderly Jesus came and approached her. And how the disciples couldn't get it. They didn't understand it. And yet what they saw there was a tender Savior approaching an outcast from her own people. Of an outcast people. And how tenderly and graciously Jesus loved her. And it was John who with Peter later went to the Samaritans and they prayed. They laid their hands upon them and they prayed that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and it would be filled with the power of the Spirit like they had all experienced at Pentecost. That's the same John. He's also the John who told us that the way we came to know love was that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our Brothers, You see, there had been this transformative love. How did John experience the transformative power? When John was at the cross, he was there. He had the up-close and personal experience of the suffering of Jesus. He saw what Jesus was willing to do for him. He was there... When Jesus offered salvation to a criminal. And he was there when Jesus prayed for his enemies who had nailed him to the cross. And Jesus prayed to forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. John saw and experienced all of this. The answer to what God thinks about you or how God feels about you is best seen from the foot of the cross where John and the Marys sat and knelt and wept. Look at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is transformative love. See, this isn't about earning God's love. This isn't about cleaning up our act so that God finds us worthy of salvation. You go down that road and it will will result in all the wrong ways of experiencing God. David Benner, he talks about this dilemma. He says, here, he's speaking about our experience at the cross. He says, here I discover how easy it is to know that I am deeply and unconditionally loved and yet continue to strive to earn love. Do you hear the tension? We know it in our heads, but we continue to try to earn it no matter what. Here I learn how much I resist the very love that holds the promise of freeing me from my striving and fears. Listen, are you exhausted from your strivings? Are you, are you keeping Jesus at arm's length because you cannot fathom what he really feels about you, what he really thinks about you? Are you uncomfortable surrendering yourself to his unconditional love? For you. Because we can have genuine intimacy with God. Look at verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You want to know where we get this concept? We get it right here. We think about God as a loving God. This is where we get it. We get it from John. You're not going to get it from the other world religions, you're not going to get it from some internal sense. You're going to go in exactly the wrong direction. But John has laid it out as plain as day. God is love. And not only that, he says, look at this. You, right here, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Here's God. Here's you. The love between us knits us together so that we become one with God. We can have intimacy in a way we never imagined possible. Look at verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. You're worried about judgment. You're worried about what God is thinking. You're worried that he's disappointed. He's frustrated with you. And he's saying, listen, on that day of judgment, you can have confidence, not because you've cleaned up your act, but because of what Christ has done for you. Not because you've earned it, but because he loves you. And this is the only way to genuinely experience intimacy with God. Consider again what David Benner says. He says, think for a moment about how Christ following develops in you. Assume God looks at you with disgust. So if you assume that God looks at you with disgust, disappointment, frustration, and anger, then the central feature of any spiritual response to such a God will be an effort to earn His approval to earn his approval. This is what causes our insecurity. This is what causes us to keep him at arm's length. He's saying, you don't need to earn my love. I've already given it to you. And if you think that God approaches you with disgust or frustration, then how will you ever rest in his presence? You will live your entire spiritual life on eggshells, walking on pins and needles. You'll be insecure. You'll never be able to rest in his presence. How will you have intimacy with God with that as the backdrop? Which is why John tells us that this perfect love drives out fear. And this is so important. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. You know that God is going to obliterate your fear. That's what he wants to do. He wants to obliterate your fear. He doesn't want to manipulate you through fear. He's not a parent who's trying to sort of scare some sense into you. You might have been raised by that guy. You might even be that parent trying to use fear as a, as a tactic to get something out of your kids and to help the, force, force them to comply or to take you seriously or whatever it might be. That's not your heavenly father. He wants to obliterate our fear. And he's offering us unconditional love in order to woo us to him, not terrify us away from him. If you want to be experiencing God's love, we have to recognize that it has to go beyond the the brain. You know, if I took a poll and I said, What do we all know here about God's love? You know, there's a whole lot of seasoned Christians in this room. We could come up with a long, long list of things we know about God's love, that we've learned about God's love. But if I were to say, let's talk about the things we know about God's love from your personal experience of God's love, I bet we'd have a much shorter list. I've spoken to many of you about these things. I know the experience of God's love and about His presence. We struggle with this, even though we might know it in our minds. And as soon as we start to move into God's love, we so quickly start to balance it with his wrath and his anger and his judgment and his hatred for sin. Listen, the Christian God, our God, he doesn't move away from sinners in disgust. Do you hear that? He doesn't move away from sinners in disgust. Jesus moves toward sinners and he brings his redemptive love with him. He brings his transformative love with him. His presence will change our lives. Do you dwell with God? Do you laugh and do you cry with him and do you sit and rest in his presence? You know, the only question you're going to have about God and you and your relationship, when you finally surrender to his love, the only question you're going to have is, why did it take me so long? Why did it take me so long? We have John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) Some of the commentators will tell you, clearly John wouldn't have written this because that's arrogant. Like, how could you refer to yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? <laughs> you know, he must this guy must have an ego issue. No doubt that is true for so many of us, including, no doubt, for John. But think about it from another perspective. This is David Benner again. He said, what a different relationship begins to develop when you realize that God is head over heels in love with you. God is simply giddy about you. He just can't help loving you. And he loves you deeply and recklessly and extravagantly just as you are. God knows you're a sinner, but your sins do not surprise him, nor do they reduce in the slightest his love for you. It's not arrogance when he talks about himself being the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think instead it's as if John is sort of stepping out of his story. In fact, he doesn't name himself at all in his gospel. He continues to refer to himself in language like this, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. It's as if John is stepping out and he's looking at the story and he's seeing how Christ loves him. And it's not arrogance. I think it's, it's almost awe. There's a little bit of joy mixed in here. You can almost think of it as wonder, as if he's saying, "Listen, that John, John is the one, the disciple that Jesus loved." Do you have that experience of God's love? When when you're looking at the story, can you can you can you feel the pleasure of God in your life and can you experience it and say, "That's that's Robert. That's that's the disciple that Jesus loved. You know, that's Chris. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Anya. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Wretch is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he's doing. He can't get over it. It's wonder and it's amazement. This has been my experience, it's been my story. And if you want to th- know what God is thinking about you, then go to His Word. Meditate on some of the key passages that tell us about God's love. Let Him wash over you again and again and again and commit yourself to simply trusting in what Jesus has done and said about you. Go to the example of John and let God's love just continue to wash over you. And don't feel like, you know, this is, this is all a big dog and pony show and I have to earn my way in because you don't. He adores you. He's head over heels, giddy in love. Let that be your dominant experience of who he is. You're the disciple whom Jesus loved. And let that resonate in your soul. Would you pray with me? Father, what we need, Lord, is an ongoing and a continued experience of this truth. I'm hoping, Lord, that each person here will carve out the time necessary to simply sit and dwell in your presence. That, Lord, no one here would be satisfied with simply knowing about you in their heads, but they want to experience you in their hearts. They want to know your presence, Lord. They want to just relish in your love. They want to to see your sacrifice on the cross through the blood of Jesus. they want to be able, Lord, to just dwell with you, with a smile upon your face, with delight in your heart, as your thoughts about us turn once again towards your deep love. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.